Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I am Peter Spiegel. You probably haven't seen the recent news reports about blue-green algae causing the rapid death of dogs from exposure in ponds. There seems to be somewhat of an epidemic happening now. The three dogs of Melissa Martin died within a day of being in or near a clear pond in Wilmington, North Carolina, and that was determined to be from this stuff. Very scary. So what are the risks to dogs from algae, and is this a growing problem? I want to welcome Dr. Robert Reed, medical director at VCA Rancho Mirage Animal Hospital in sunny and warm Rancho Mirage, California. Hi, Robert. Hi, Peter. Nice to talk to you. Likewise. Okay, so... uh, what is going on with this algae or this bacteria? And hopefully you'll explain exactly what we're dealing with here. And uh, what is harming these dogs? Well, I think you're, you're right to, to suggest that it's uh, uh, bacteria. It is actually a bacterial organism that causes it. It's a specific type of bacteria that produces uh, chlorophyll and therefore uh, can photosynthesize sunlight and that makes it green, but sometimes blue, and sometimes they can be reddish or brownish, usually blue to green. Um, there are a number of different species of this organism, and they can be found in all different types of fresh water. It can be cool water or warm water, but they tend to grow much better in warm water, which is why we see more problems with cyanobacteria, it's a technical name for it, or blue-green algae, in the late summer, early fall, because water is warmer, ponds tend to become more concentrated as they dry up a little bit and there's more intense sunlight in the summer. All of that contributes to the growth of these organisms in ponds that are stagnant, that don't have a lot of movement, that don't have a lot of oxygen in them, provide an environment for nutrients to concentrate and these organisms to overgrow. The ponds that get the most algae or more the most um, cyanobacteria are ones that tend to get runoff from agricultural fields or cities or livestock areas where nutrients can become concentrated and further contributes to the growth of these organisms. It's not actually the organisms that cause the, the poisoning. It's a toxin that they produce. The toxin is usually contained within the organisms. Sometimes it's released into the water, uh, sometimes a little bit of both. And there are a number of different possible toxins produced that are somewhat specific to the individual type of organism that's in the water or the combination of organisms that's there, which is why some people may have heard of different possible symptoms that can occur, different rates of onset that can occur with these, these poisonings, because certain toxins will have different effects and some happen more quickly than others. Yeah. Now, some of the news reports are remarkable because the illness is so rapidly progressive and so quickly fatal, it's, uh, it's shocking and frightening. It, it is, it's very dramatic. Uh, it is frightening and, and quite tragic because um, a dog can, can appear perfectly normal and sometimes water is not obviously contaminated. You can't always tell. Um, whether the cyanobacteria are present in the water. And if it's a toxin that has a neurologic effect, um, then the uh, impact may be evident in as little as half an hour. Oh, my goodness. Um, Many of them, in fact, probably more of them have 
uh, toxic effects on the liver or the kidneys where the symptoms may develop over hours, potentially even over the, uh, a couple of days. And you could have combinations of these effects that create numerous symptoms. Um, there's no specific antidote or treatment for the toxins. It just requires a lot of supportive care. Um, so uh, uh, an immediate trip to the veterinarian is a good idea to try to get some supportive treatment started uh, to help clear the toxin before an animal succumbs to it. So things like charcoal and IV fluids and such? It certainly could be. Uh, I think IV fluids for sure. Uh, maybe some uh, supplements to support the liver, potentially antibiotics, anti-seizure yeah. medication, because neurologic effects like seizures are often a component um, in these types of poisonings. I think the first step, of course, that anyone who thinks their dog may have been exposed to blue-green algae or cyanobacteria is to wash the dog off with clear water. I mean, clear, fresh water to get any residue of algae off of the fur or any of the toxins that may be on the, the dog's skin. Um, the uh, dogs are fastidious enough that they'll often lick bits of algae off of their fur that compounds uh, the problem. So they should be rinsed off as soon as possible. So talk about the exposure required to cause illness. Is it through the uh, licking and uh, consuming it by the oral route? Uh, good question. Yeah, it's, it's primarily through consumption of the toxin in the water uh, or by consuming the algae. And, and I think one of the reasons that dogs are more often affect, affected by uh, cyanobacteria than other animals, because it can affect any type of animal, even people, uh, is that dogs tend to drink a lot of the water when they get into it. They also lick bits of algae or water from their fur, which adds to it. And dogs are less likely to avoid water that looks like it may be, you know, that's stagnant or may have some odor to it or may have algae or uh, other plant material floating on the surface of it. So dogs tend to be more frequently affected. It could certainly affect any species, though. Do you get the impression, like I do, that it seems to be a more common thing this season than in the past few years? You know, I do have that impression. That, you know, I think, as I said, this is not a new thing. We've had problems with cyanobacteria seasonally in warmer parts of the country for a really long time. Um, but it seems like, um, potentially for environmental reasons, that we're seeing more of it this year, and that may be because a lot of the country has had unusually warm weather, which is causing ponds to shrink more, um, there's more stagnation in the water, there might be areas of uh, greater runoff, and of course the warm temperatures will contribute to it as well. So there probably are some environmental factors that are contributing to it, and, and it may also be that you know our dogs are more active part of our lives and they're getting out with us into the environment and getting into water where they may not have done so in the past. Yeah. Uh, so to reiterate, prevention is uh, key here. It certainly is. You know, as the uh, experience in North Carolina illustrates, you know, you don't always know by looking at the water that it has this in it. Uh, you know, the classic appearance of the water is, is one that has a film on it that looks like green paint. Um, but a lot of them don't have that, and there's no way to know whether the water is contaminated without sophisticated testing. So basically, if the water looks like it doesn't have, that it's not moving, um, if it's in a pond that's been drawn down through evaporation, if it's in an area where there's agricultural runoff or contamination that might raise the nutrient level in the pond, uh, then those should definitely be avoided. 
Um, I think this time of year, uh, the, the late summer, early fall, you have to be particularly careful uh, when you're outside in those types of environments. Robert, we've got a few more minutes. I thought maybe we could touch on uh, two other uh, conditions uh, related to water exposure, leptospirosis uh, sometimes, and giardiasis, giardia. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about those? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, leptospirosis uh, and giardiasis, giardia, are neither of those is seasonal like cyanobacteria. They tend to be present in certain water sources all the time. Uh, giardia is a protozoan parasite um, that, if it infects a dog, causes diarrhea. It's not likely to be life-threatening, um, but it has a, a life form, a cyst form, that lives long-term in water. and It can be stagnant or flowing water, but it, it would have to be water that's persistent. In other words, if the water dries up, like a puddle would dry up, then the giardia will not survive in that. Uh, and that's uh, a dog would pick up the giardia from that water water source by drinking the water. Uh, fortunately, most of the most adult dogs with healthy immune systems are not going to have much of a problem with giardia. We find it a lot when we do stool analysis, but it isn't always associated with symptoms. It is fairly widespread in the environment, though, so it's a decent chance that a dog will come across it if they spend a lot of time around water. Got it. Interesting. Uh, leptospirosis is a little bit more of a concern in terms of its impact on dogs. Uh, the leptospirosis is worldwide a, a very serious problem, particularly in warmer countries or warmer parts of the world, because it affects both dogs and people as well as other organisms. Um, it's caused by a bacterium that lives in water only. It will not survive if it's dried out and it can stay in water active for a long period of time and, and requires a remarkably few number of organisms to actually cause an infection. Dogs will normally get it from drinking the water, um, but they could potentially get it from swimming in the water and have it absorbed through the mucous membranes of the nose or the eyes. Um, giardia is transmitted through the digestive tract, usually of wildlife, and leptospirosis is transmitted through the urinary tract of wildlife. So th both of those organisms are going to be more likely to be a problem in, in an area where there's a lot of wildlife or where wild animals share water sources with dogs. And I think uh, you and I have discussed leptospirosis in the past, and if memory serves, uh, you taught us that it can be a tough diagnosis to make unless you really are thinking about it, leptospirosis. That's correct, yeah. Now, there are some useful tools for diagnosing it, but it's not something that comes immediately to mind because it, the symptoms are fairly vague, vomiting, lethargy, not eating. Um, it can be different for different dogs, and some dogs can have really severe symptoms and some can have relatively mild symptoms. So, you know, we see these dogs that are coming down with what are general symptoms of illness that are not specific for leptospirosis. And if we don't think about the possibility of leptospirosis and don't either address it through testing or treatment or both, then it can become a very, very significant problem simply because we didn't think to look for it. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, Dr. Robert Reed. Really always appreciate your good information. You're welcome, Peter. Nice to talk to you.
You are listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. Now in its 12th year, Animals Today covers all animal-related topics and issues worldwide with an emphasis on animal welfare. Animals Today is a project of the nonprofit animal welfare organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. Its mission is to improve the lives of animals and to encourage increased compassion and respect for all living beings. Check them out at aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. Your donation to Advancing the Interests of Animals will support the ongoing production of Animals Today. Just visit aianimals.org and click Support Us. And thanks for listening. back to the show. So most of us know to keep human medicines, right? Medicine meant for people away from our pets. Human medication can be toxic or even fatal if ingested by our animals. And I see this being probably more pertinent to dogs. Dogs tend to get into bottles and chew on things and might ingest what's in them or lick up a pill or two that happens to be lying on the bathroom floor. Anyway, dogs and cats can be sickened when they ingest medications meant for people. And this includes most human medicines, antidepressants, sleeping medications, pain medications, narcotics, NSAIDs, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like ibuprofen, Advil, Motrin, Naproxen, which is in Aleve. Actually, according to the American Veterinary Medical Association, ibuprofen is the most common drug that pets eat, possibly because many of the pills are candy-coated. And ibuprofen can cause kidney failure and other medical conditions in pets. Well, according to a new report issued last week by the FDA, using pain relief cream on your body can put your cat at risk. Mm. So it's been reported that cats developed kidney failure and other cats died because they were exposed to a cream or lotion containing non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or NSAIDs. For example, one is called Flurbiprofen. So it wasn't like these were cases of animal abuse. The owners didn't put the cream or lotion directly on their pets, but the owners were applying it to themselves, like to their neck and feet. Or in one case, a woman was using the cream for her sore muscles and her arthritic pain, and the animals were exposed to it. And you can see how this happens, right? The lotion's on your body, your cat's lying on your lap, or right where you applied your lotion, and it absorbs through your cat's skin. Or the lotion is still on your hands, and you're petting your cat, or they clean or lick themselves or lick your skin where the lotion was applied and ingest it that way, or the lotion on your body rubs off on the linens or furniture and your cat lies right there on the piece of furniture. So you you could see how there are many ways for your cat to be exposed to this medication. So be aware of this. And of course, visit your veterinarian if you notice any signs of lethargy, loss of appetite, vomiting, whatever. And I will tell you that this new warning reminds me of an interview I did a few years ago with veterinarian Serenu Lingretti. He was explaining a similar situation, a potentially dangerous situation to both your cats and dogs with hormone replacement therapy preparations made for humans. So you have these preparations, hormone replacement therapy, which are made into lotions or gels or even sprays. They're meant for humans and you apply it directly to your skin for absorption. 
but it can also absorb directly into your dog or cat skin if they come in contact with it. So dog or cat's lying on your lap where you applied the lotion, or you're hugging or petting your pet and the preparation rubs off onto them, or the lotion gets onto the beddings where you and your pet sleep together and it absorbs through their skin or they lick it off and ingest it. And these hormones can be extremely toxic to your pet and even fatal. He was talking about how estrogens especially can increase your pet's risk of breast cancer and can even kill your pet. An early first sign might be hair loss, but boy, you really got to be careful. I can see this happening so easily, Peter. You know how Sky, one of our dogs, loves to lick any lotion, usually a moisturizing lotion off my body. Yeah, yeah. And that Voltaren stuff, everyone is using that for aches and pains these days. It's so easy to obtain. It's inexpensive. I've used it before, and uh, it's everywhere. Yeah. Hi, I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and your Animals Today Minute for today is about the American bison. These large, majestic animals, along with the bald eagle, serve as an official symbol of the United States. In prehistoric times, millions of bison roamed the continent along with large cats and woolly mammoths. However, by the late 1800s, as the U.S. inhabitants moved west, the bison population was nearly wiped out. This is because the settlers slaughtered bison for sport and their hides, as well as to clear the plains for livestock. Native Americans used bison for everything, from food and clothing to shelter and tools. According to the National Wildlife Federation, it's estimated that before the expansion west, between 30 million and 60 million bison roamed the area, from Canada to northern Mexico and from the plains to the eastern forests. However, by 1890, less than 1,000 bison remained. Thanks to a few private individuals, in conjunction with tribes, states, and the Department of the Interior, bison were saved from extinction. Bison are North America's largest native land animals. A full-grown male, a bull, can weigh up to 2,000 pounds and reach a height of 6 feet tall. A fully-grown female, a cow, can weigh as much as 1,000 pounds and stand 4 to 5 feet tall. Bison calves weigh anywhere between 30 and 70 pounds at birth. The average lifespan of the bison is approximately 20 years. Sometimes confused with each other, bison are completely different from buffalo, although there may be some resemblance. Buffalo originate in Africa and Asia, have large sets of horns, and lack the massive shoulder hump characteristic of bison. The bison is a fascinating animal that has a long history in the United States. In fact, this large mammal helped to create habitats on the Great Plains for a variety of species, including birds and many plant species. This is because as bison forage, they aerate the soil with their hooves. This aids in plant growth and disperses native seeds, all of which help to maintain a healthy and balanced ecosystem. Now, that large hump on a bison's back, it's a powerful muscular structure supported by a large vertebrae, which can be up to two feet long. These powerful muscles permit the animal to forcibly move its head side to side. So in deep snow, a path can be made. It's like a built-in snowplow. Here's another intriguing bison fact. It's possible to tell the mood of a bison by its tail. If its tail is hanging down and moving from side to side in a natural motion, this generally means the animal is calm. However, if the bison's tail is standing straight up, you don't want to be anywhere in its path, as this often indicates it's ready to charge. And despite their massive size, these animals can run at speeds of 40 miles per hour. They're also extremely agile and can jump up to six feet high, as well as spin around quickly. This has served them well in fighting off predators. Of course, their sheer size alone presents a strong deterrent.
In the bison behavior known as wallowing, they roll around in the dirt to drive away flies and help shed fur. Male bison also wallow during mating season to leave behind their scent and display their strength. Speaking of mating, the females and males generally live in small, separate bands and come together in large herds in the summer, which is the mating season. Bison are grazers, and they eat grasses, herbs, shrubs, and twigs. They regurgitate their food and chew on it as cud before finally digesting it. Another interesting fact is that bison are nearsighted. To make up for it, they have excellent senses of smell and hearing. Yellowstone National Park is the only place in the United States where bison have continuously lived since prehistoric times. According to the National Park Service, as of July 2015, Yellowstone's bison population was estimated at 4,900, making it the largest bison population on public lands. The Yellowstone herd is one of the few that remains genetically free of cattle genes. In 1905, the American Bison Society was formed. By 1930, the society had enough bison to restore free-ranging bison herd. Working with the Department of the Interior, they donated 14 bison to Wind Cave National Park in South Dakota. More than 100 years later, the bison from Wind Cave helped to reestablish other herds across the United States. On May 9, 2016, President Obama signed the National Bison Legacy Act into law, officially making the American bison the national mammal of the United States. And that was today's Animals Today Minute. This is Lori. And it's Peter here. And make sure you check us out at AnimalsTodayRadio.com. AnimalsTodayRadio.com. And visit us on Facebook. And you can also subscribe on iTunes. Listen to us on iTunes. That's AnimalsTodayRadio.com. Thanks for listening. People know that chocolate is dangerous for dogs and cats to eat. But did you know that coffee and tea are dangerous for pets too? There are many foods you should not let your pets eat. Onion, garlic, yeast dough, and even avocado. Grapes and raisins are especially toxic to dogs too. Even certain plants and flowers can be toxic or deadly to pets. Cats should not be allowed to eat lilies, daffodils, tulips, or sago palm. And make sure your dogs don't eat azalea, lilies, or sago either. Another danger area, especially with dogs, is eating medicine meant for people. So make sure pills are out of your pet's reach and in safe containers. And of course, leftover bones can crack and cause choking. So don't give bones to dogs. Remember these pet safety tips to keep your pets healthy and happy all year round. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. As temperatures climb, please remember never to leave your dog in the car, even for just a minute, because even with the windows cracked and your car parked in the shade, the temperature inside can climb up in a matter of minutes, high enough to kill your pet. If you love your dog, leave them at home where it's cool and comfortable. And if you see a dog or other pet in a car, you may only have a minute to save their life. Here are a couple of steps you can take. 
Make an announcement in the store or business that car is parked nearest to. Also, call the police department or animal control right away. Remember, it only takes a minute or two for a dog to get seriously ill or die in a car on a warm day. So swift action can save a life. Dogs are unable to cool themselves the way people can. So never leave a dog or any animal inside a car on a warm day, not even for a minute. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Check them out at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. Welcome back to Animals Today. Every once in a while, you hear in the news about a dog, a family pet being shot by police officers. Uh, Maybe they're pursuing somebody or they feel they're being threatened. And it's always a big issue in the news and everyone gets all upset and wonders whether it was needed and what the training is. It raises a lot of issues, doesn't it? So we really wanted to explore this because I think we've identified uh, a program and an individual who's really trying to do something about this whole issue. His name is John Thompson. He is Deputy Executive Director and COO at National Sheriff's Association. Hi, John. Hey, how are you today? Thanks very much for coming on. So how big a problem is the shooting of pet dogs by law enforcement? Well, you know, and again, no hard data, but we do know it's it's quite rampant. Um, it's, uh, there are several web pages that um, show each incident where it happens. We don't know how, how true those, uh, that data is or information, but um, they've created a website, I think, called Puppyside. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, but even driving that is really what, it, what the important factor is. That it is a problem today. It's a problem because our law enforcement officers are not being trained uh, or advised of information they need prior to getting involved in incidents with animals. So a lot of the officers, they did not grow up having uh, dogs as pets, and they're just not naturally uh, good at knowing the signs or what's a dangerous situation, things like that? Yeah, and I mean, I'm a perfect example. I mean, I was uh, 30 years in law enforcement, and I never was, uh, well, one, I never had a dog, so I really wasn't attuned to having a pet uh, or an animal. Um, I didn't receive any training. It was just, it was common practice that, you know, if a dog came at you snarling and growling, uh, you just shot the dog, mm. you know, and you pushed him off the side of the road, you call animal control, come pick him up. Uh, that's the days that, that the way they were. And, and unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, I should say that society has changed the way we look at animals and the way we look at companion animals. But unfortunately, uh, the law enforcement profession just has not caught up to that. And that's, no different than what we saw during the 70s and 80s of the do- domestic violence movement. Uh, you know, officers didn't understand uh, the dynamics of domestic violence, and so it took a long time to do that. So, so yeah, we, we have a problem. Uh, the problem stems from uh, lack of knowledge uh, and culture and many other things, but I think that we're making progress. I think that uh, I've, in my six or seven years of fighting this, I think I'm seeing uh, good results, not as fast as I'd like to, but, but seeing good results and, and seeing people change, uh, just like the sheriff of Chester County, PA, who, who basically trained every one of her dog, every one of her deputies uh, on how to deal with uh, animal encounters and then put catch poles in every one of the uh, sheriff's vehicles. Mm. That, that's progress. Yeah. 
So how did you get interested in this area? I never had a dog. I was fairly animal neutral. Didn't really care much about uh, animals at all. And um, I happened to get a, um, a little Shih Tzu years and years ago from my wife. And I gave him to her and said, here, your dog, take care of him. Um, and long story short, we uh, we bonded. Uh, remember, he kept trying to be friends to me. And one, one Saturday morning, we took off in the woods and had a, a long couple-mile walk and afterwards became best friends. And, and he changed my life. I mean, I, I did not look at him as a dog. I looked at him as, you know, as a, as a friend, as a family member, as a child. I mean, he was part of the family. So I, I basically then changed to understand what dogs and, and, and how animals mean to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, my daughter, who is an attorney, wrote an article uh, on animal abuse and serial killers and how most of the serial killers always abused animals or killed animals prior to turning on humans. And I just couldn't believe that. Uh, so I started researching, and, and what I found, uh, it, it made me sick and turned me into a monster, per se. Uh, because I realized that, wow, how did I miss this? How in the world could I spend all these years in law enforcement and all this stuff right under my nose, yeah. and we didn't even know it? And then once I started looking, I realized we still don't get it. I went to a DOJ listing session on animal abuse, and not one law enforcement uh, person was in that room. And I'm thinking, this is the problem. I mean, you all are talking about the issues, but the people who are – first and foremost in the front line of that aren't even at the table. Uh, so I just kind of went on a, uh, you know, a mission, um, uh, being the uh, chief operating officer at the National Sheriff's Association. My um, CEO and executive director, along with the board, were very, um, very good about letting me move forward in this issue. And um, we started uh, training. We started uh, giving information out. Uh, at first, it was tough. Uh, it wasn't a hard sell. It was just to get them to understand was the hard sell. But they once they saw it and they got it, hmm. there was no resistance. And I still don't today, after years later, see any resistance to the information that we're delivering. And again, it goes back to what I said earlier with domestic violence, is that we resisted the whole concept of domestic violence. Our, our culture and our thoughts were if the woman wanted to leave the house, and she, we were giving her that opportunity. And if she didn't want to leave, then, you know, what's nothing we could do? Uh, you know, she just would have to stay there and deal with what she had to deal with. But little did we know there were many reasons why the woman wouldn't leave the house. And many times now we're finding out it's because of the animal, because the animal's been threatened. And they just won't leave that animal in that kind of condition. People are getting the message, and just like your show. It, it'll get to more people. Uh, it'll keep spreading. And one day we'll be talking about another issue, and we'll be relating back to this one as we do domestic violence. Okay, so there is a training simulator that's been developed and deployed. Tell us about that. We're really looking at trying to find the right training scenario. There's some training out there, uh, and we've been really looking, trying to find how do we do this and how do we develop this with law enforcement so that uh, it works for them. And so we actually got a hold of a a virtual reality uh, company called Virtua, and we asked them would they be willing to work with us on uh, developing this training. And they were very amenable to it, and they, uh, years, uh, a little over a year's worth of work into it and creating scenarios and doing it in a scientific approach. Uh, they ended up rolling out this training that we have. And the benefits of it is that when you go in it, 
it's a 360 environment. So when you're standing there dealing with the, the, the situation in front of you, to the right or left of you, a dog may come charging at you or the dog may come charging at you from the front. And depending on what you do uh, is the way the scenario will will then go to the next scene because they'll have an operator and he he then puts it into the next scenario based on the action that you take. Mm. And I will tell you now that you can sit in any class you want. And, and again, I think all training of any kind or any amount of time in this area is beneficial. I can tell you that I've been on the street and even being in that scenario, you almost get that feeling that it's real. And that's why the training successful because it makes you, uh, you, you know, your, your emotions are reacting as you're training. It's not like sitting and listening to somebody lecture to you. So have you received feedback from other officers who have received training and then encountered animals in the field? Yes. Now we just rolled this out a couple months ago. Okay. So it's, it's very new, but everybody who's gone through it, uh, everybody who's uh, demonstrated it is just was impressed with it. There, there needs to be some more work done in uh, scenarios, especially with uh, SWAT teams and, you know, uh, entry, uh, entry teams, because these scenarios are basically the type that you see and you deal with out in the public. Uh, but we also have to continue to develop this training for, for our SWAT and entry teams, because that's when a lot of incidents happen during those type of, uh, you know, those type of operations. So we're going to continue to move it forward. And part of it also is a face-to-face training that we've developed along with it that we can do without the simulator. But, uh, but absolutely, hands down, nothing really compares to doing it in the simulator. Is the simulator in a fixed uh, location, and uh, how do police departments access it? Well, we have a we have a, a smaller unit that's not the 360 version that we can take out with us to train. But generally, the agencies already have these simulators. They've they've already purchased them and they use them for other type of uh, law enforcement incidents. And they just never was a uh, a dog encounters component to it. So by adding this component to the already uh, equipment they already use. Uh, just gives them another level of training in this area. That's great. Well, it's really exciting. Where can people go online to see what this looks like and to maybe watch some video of it? Yeah, it's www.sheriffs.org slash L-E-D-E-T. And actually, there'll be a, they can see a demonstration of it. There's some uh, press release, pretty much everything that you need. Really appreciate it. John Thompson with National Sheriff's Association. Thank you so much. Great work. Okay, thank you. More with animals today after this break. For the past quarter century, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. Its programs include reducing income taxes by allowing a deduction for spay and neuter expenses, preventing animals adopted from shelters from reproducing, and requiring the mandatory identification of dogs and cats to prevent dumping the unwanted. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.org. Today's Animals Today Minute is about the platypus and specifically about two intriguing features of this peculiar creature. 
The bill of the platypus, described as being smooth to touch, with the feel akin to suede, and is flexible and rubbery, is used to scoop up its meals such as worms and shrimp from the muddy floors of streams, ponds, and lakes. As the platypus lacks teeth, gravel is also taken in at the same time, so its grinding plates can pulverize the food into small digestible bits. But the bill may be even more interesting for the specialized sense organ it has. Thousands of microscopic electroreceptors detect moving prey by sensing electrical activity associated with their muscle contractions. The skin of the bill also contains numerous mechanoreceptors called push rods, which are thought to aid in the animal's ability to detect and judge the direction and distance of moving prey. There's still much to be learned about how these sensors work and interact in concert. Another noteworthy aspect of platypuses are the venomous spurs on the heel of each rear foot in males. They appear to be used to fend off rival males during courtship and mating. So as cute as these creatures are, mine their spurs, because the venom they can inject is nasty. It will cause immediate, extreme, and long-lasting pain, which curiously is impervious to the pain-relieving effects of morphine. Its constituents are still being figured out, but one chemical lowers blood pressure and another looks to be a neurotoxin. Consider yourself warned. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. Welcome back to the show. So we don't talk much about bees on animals today, have we, Peter? No, we don't. It's been a while. They're very vital to our food supply. They certainly are. Yes. So, you know what's coming? Uh, A snack. (laughs) I want to know how much you know about bees. Not much. Go ahead. You want your snack first? (laughs) I need energy. Okay. There are three types of bees in the hive. Name them. There are the drones. Yep. There are there's the queen. Two. And there are the, the workers. Very good. Oh yeah. The male bees are called what? Male bees are drones. Very good. Okay, let's stop there. <laughs> you getting hungry? <laughs> I'm just gonna take my 100 percent result so far and just cash it in. Drones' only purpose in the hive is to mate with the queen, true or false? That Oh, uh, I guess that's true. That is true. Male honeybees serve only one purpose. They provide sperm to the queen. Mm. About a week after emerging from their cells, the drones are ready to mate. Once they've fulfilled that purpose, they die. So they die immediately after mating. Okay, if it works. Only purpose of a male... Yes, I know. Okay. Okay. Drones are not able to sting. True or false? That is going to be true. True. They have no stinger. Did you know that or is that a guess? That was a guess. That was good. Good guess. The lifespan of a queen bee is around two to three years. Peter, up to how many eggs per day does the queen bee lay? Five eggs, 250 eggs per day, or 1,500 eggs a day? Oh, 1,500. Yes. 1,500 eggs a day is correct. Without a queen, the colony will eventually die. Peter, regarding workers, all workers are female or male or a combination of both. Oh, oh, gee. I'm going to say they are all male. They're all female. Uh, That's interesting. Number of worker bees in an average hive. is 30,000. 50,000 or more in a strong hive. Very good. Okay. True or false, the bee will die if she stings. You know, I thought that was true my entire life, so I'm going to say true. It's true. Okay. How many eyes does a bee have? Oh. Two, four, or five? Oh. 
This doesn't go into the whole compound eye thing. It I'm does. Gonna, I'm going to say two, four, five. I'm going to say five. Five is correct. Oh, okay. Two with compound lenses mm-hmm. and three light sensors on top of their head. Oh, that's right. That's right. That's cool. How many wings does a bee have? And the answer is four? Yep. Two okay. on each side. Okay. Bees make honey from? From, from the... Uh, um, the nectar that they yes get? the nectar from the from the flower yes oh interesting what gives a bee sting its ouch and its itch mm. some I don't know toxin yeah it's toxin? some chemical called melatonin ah how fast can a honeybee fly fifteen thirty or sixty miles per hour I'm going to say fifteen miles an hour. fifteen is correct okay wings beat how many times per second fifty one hundred or two hundred. Mm. Times per second. I'm going to say I'm flapping right now to try to simulate how fast that would have I to be. I see you flapping. I 200, don't think, 200. Yeah, you can't flap as fast as a bee. 200 times, is, 200 times per second is correct. Don't laugh at my methods. They are the key to success. <laughs> no, it's interesting, Peter. The frequent beats per minute contributes to the buzz we hear when they fly. Yep. How much honey does the worker bee make in her lifetime? One twelfth teaspoon of honey in her lifetime? One half cup or one cup? Oh, okay, half cup. One twelfth well, teaspoon of honey. That's a lot of work. Yeah, it's a lot of work. How many flowers does a honeybee visit during one collection trip? Five to ten, ten to twenty, fifty to a hundred. Mm. How about fifty to a hundred? Yes, that's correct. Okay. It's an interesting, uh, tough life for these bees. Hope they're happy. Define happiness. Okay, no, okay. So, Peter, worker bees need to visit around 2 million flowers to produce a pound of honey. For honeybees, there's power in numbers. From spring to fall, the worker bees must produce about 60 pounds of honey to sustain the entire colony during the winter. It takes tens of thousands of workers to get the job done. A single bee colony can produce more than 100 pounds of extra honey And this is what is harvested by the beekeeper. Okay. Extra honey. Right. What is the name given to wine made with fermented honey? Hmm. I don't know what kind of wine that is. Mead. Oh. Okay. Well, you should know this. You know your liquors. What Scotch Scotch liqueur is made with honey? Oh, uh, oh, I don't know. Drambuie. Oh, really? Have you ever had Drambuie? I don't remember. I don't Is that a bad sign? <laughs> yes, it's a bad sign. <laughs> How many sides does each honeycomb cell have? Six. Very good. Uh, elementary. Geometry. How do honeybees communicate with each other? Oh, Release. Have, no, I know they have this dance, right? Yes, they have a dance, which alerts other bees where nectar and pollen are located. Yeah. The dance explains direction and distance. Isn't that cool? It is very neat. The workers, how do bees stay warm and thus remain active all winter? Do they cluster for warmth? Do they hibernate? Or do they auto-regulate their body temperature? Boy, I'm going to say they cluster. That's correct. Bees do not hibernate, but do cluster for warmth. The honeybee is the only insect which produces food that is consumed by human beings. True or false? Oh, uh, I'm going to say that's false. That must be somebody eating something around that's the world. That's true. Yeah, well, whole, like, no exceptions. Well, okay. I mean, they might be eating stuff, but normal human beings. <laughs> okay. Okay. How do honeybees build a honeycomb? 
I'll just tell you. Honeybees produce wax from glands located at the underside of their abdomen. They use this beeswax to build a honeycomb. Okay. And humans use this wax to make candles, of course, furniture polish, and stuff like that. That's it. Okay. You did good. You did really good. Good guessing this time. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> Not about my liquors, okay? <laughs> don't know my li- I better study up on them. Drambuie. I don't think I've ever had drambuie. Well, okay, well, let's do some research on that. Okay. Thanks for tuning in. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you, to, <laughs> encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. 